everybody. Welcome to Augmenters. I'm Julie. And this is Jimmy. Hello. We are two business founders who started out as solopreneurs, yet found our greatest success when working with others. Mentoring is key to incredible relationships, and the Augmenters platform will help you get further faster because great relationships lead to better business and more fulfilling lives. You are here because you want to help others shine and see the light in themselves. We will support you in your mentoring journey with advice, tools, and stories that will augment your relationships to the next level. So strap on your ear pods, prepare to listen generously, and become an augmenter with us. Jimmy, I forgot my headphones again. No worries. Just turn up the volume into this next Augmenters episode. Hey, Jimmy. Morning. How are you doing? I'm great. It's Tuesday. Post-Halloween. Are you on a sugar crash? No sugar. Just way too much onesie. <laughs> we had my dog dressed as a lobster all night. He was not happy, but it was a good time. Jimmy, I'm so excited about this episode. I read Eric's book. I stalked him online. I emailed him until he was willing to become my friend and come on this podcast. He is so dynamic, so brilliant, done so many different things. And his book, Difficult Decisions, was incredibly helpful to me at a time where I was making some really tough decisions. And I think his rubric around decision-making is just brilliant. And I am just overjoyed about this episode. What did you think of our conversation with Eric? I couldn't believe you had seen him two nights before at the Hip Hop Public Health Annual Dinner. Who knew that you'd be involved in the same organization right before we recorded an episode together? It was pretty wild. I mean, and also, so Hip Hop Public Health, shout out. shout out. One of the very coolest organizations out there. I got to hang out with Chuck D, Salt, DMC, Dougie Fresh. I know you're a bit jealous. The original entertainer, Dougie Fresh, doing very important work too about actually cultural relevant communications and really meeting people where they are for impact. So shout out Hip Hop Public Health for real. Yes, it was the coolest. And Eric's on the board and involved. I've been involved with them in various ways. So that is you know somewhat how our earliest connections were, but I definitely uh, stalked him enough to, to get on the podcast. So I think there is a lot in here that people are going to get a lot out of really related to, I think, decision-making, but also leadership, how to show up for your mentors and also how to show up for your mentees and be open to your team being mentors to you. We don't want to call it reverse mentoring, but I think Eric had such a good perspective on kind of the peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. Mm -hmm. And the evolution where you can quickly switch between being a mentor and a mentee and that you're just in a mentoring relationship. It's not about specific roles. That was a great takeaway yeah. for me. And Eric, I think might drop wisdom on potentially the best way to think about the impact you want to leave as a mentor in a relationship. Ooh, do you know what kind of an impact you want to leave? My goal would be that the person I have a relationship with knows that I cared and leaves a bit happier than before we were talking that day. I love that. Hope too, right? That's something we talk quite a bit about is outlook. Hope that they outlook. feel more hopeful about getting to the next stage or getting to the next step or felt heard, felt validated, felt like they're on their journey. I would totally agree. I bet Eric feels the same. Should we jump into his interview? I think it's time. Here we go. Hey. 
Eric Kleiner, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us here at Augmenters. Thank you both for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So Eric, I have been stalking you. I apologize in advance, but I knew I had a feeling we were going to connect. I had a feeling we had a lot in common. Your book landed on my desk at a moment I desperately needed it. It's called Difficult Decisions. A, it was just a phenomenal book when you're a leader, because when you're a leader, you have to make a lot of really difficult decisions. And we were just at that moment, the sort of conflux of my company where we were growing. We had to make some personnel decisions. We had to decide about directions. We decided about how we're going to integrate our leadership team. And your rubric was incredible. So I flew through your book on an airplane. I got home. I stalked you. I realized a couple of things we have in common. A, we're both working consulting, as does Jimmy, to a certain extent as well. But we're also all jumbos. Indeed. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And lots of shared interest in similar organizations and lots of great networks in common. So it is uh, it is absolutely a pleasure to be able to join you both. Thank you for, yeah. uh, for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So of course here, we always love the opportunity for our guests to introduce themselves. We could kind of read a, you know, canned bio, but we'd really love to hear, you know, your version. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, 25 years I've been in whatever professional field I'm in, which I think changes depending on the context I'm talking about. The things that have been the through lines to my career have been aspects of adult education, learning, professional development, aspects of health, wellness, and self-improvement and aspects of inclusion, equity, and diversity. And we didn't call it that in quite the same way back back 25 years ago when I started, but I worked in government for much of my early career first with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, running a program called the Safe Schools Program for LGBT students, and working in health education, which I sort of got into by accident, but it was my entree into one of the worlds where we all have some overlap. I worked in community-based organizations for a number of years when I moved to New York. I have a side life as a writer, not just as the author of Difficult Decisions, but spent many years and continue to, in my quote-unquote spare time, do some work as a playwright and director. And so with another jumbo, Amy Rhodes, I had a, a production that was a commercial success in New York, brought me here 23 years ago and have been here ever since. Went back into government during the Bloomberg administration, spent seven years working for the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and the Department of Education, and then went into private sector consulting about 12 years ago with a British firm called YSC Consulting, now been around 32 years. I became the chief executive of YSC three and a half years ago, and we just recently became a part of the Accenture organization over the past summer. I am a dad of three. My husband and I have a a daughter who's nine and a half and two sons who are five. And so in addition to getting to do all kinds of cool, fun stuff, I don't really sleep very much. That's me in a nutshell. Amazing. So many lives, Eric. So many lives. I did not yeah. realize about the playwright. What was the play? It was called Spooky Dog and the Teenage Gang. It was acquired by Samuel French, now called Concord Theatrical, some teen years ago. And Halloween weekend is always when most people want to put on an adult stage parody of Scooby-Doo. Oh my God. That yeah. is perfect. Who knew? Ruh-roh. Who knew? Ruh-roh. Indeed. Ruh-roh. Indeed. Of course, my first question is, if a character from Scooby-Doo could be your mentor, who would yeah. it be? Who would you want to be mentor? By. I think the obvious choice is Velma because she's the most insightful and best able. And of course, in my world, she's called Velma, just to be clear for uh, for reasons having to do with copyright law. She's the most insightful, best able to put together disparate pieces of data to make sense of them. But actually, 
I think that's stuff that I'm pretty good at. And I think one of the things that makes for a great mentor is somebody who sees things differently from you. And so probably any of the other four would be a better fit for me because they all see the world a little <laughs> bit differently. That's a great point, Jimmy. What about you? I was debating about who would expand my outlook more and whether that mm. would be Shaggy or Scooby-Doo, obviously. I don't think there'd be a lot of verbal communication in the mentoring time. But kind of like getting into the vibe, you could really go somewhere. I love it. You know, a lot of what we talk about here at Augmenter is the fact that there are kind of these mentors everywhere that you would never expect. But imagining you, Eric, and all your transitions, all the different places that you've been, we'd love to hear a little bit about some of the folks who have kind of as you've transitioned from one sector to another, very yeah. different, who's helped guide you. Every few years, I sit down and make a list of who are the people that I think have been my mentors. What have I learned from them? What do I want to take forward with me? I don't really remember why I started doing that exercise. I feel like it was for either a course I was taking or the artist's way or some book that I was following. But I found Shout out really, Morning Pages. Shout out, shout morning, out pages. morning Pages. So I think it was for something like that that I started listing it. But what I discovered over time was that often the people that were the mentors whose counsel I valued the most and learned the most from were people that I was not aware were my mentors at the time. And so I maybe thought of them as a colleague, a boss, but later on reframed the relationship as a mentoring relationship. And that's been an important insight for me because in my own work, I often talk to people about the importance of having an explicit mentoring relationship and doing that with intent, agreeing it together and sort of formalizing aspects of that. But I think I've modified my view of that in reflecting on the fact that the best mentors I've ever had were people that at the time I didn't think of being my mentors or they didn't necessarily explicitly name themselves mentors. And so these are folks like a guy named Titus Higgins, who when I was in my late teens was an educator at a program that I spent some time at. He went on to be an acclaimed photographer and an artist really educating folks on the side, but who gave me a lot of insight that I couldn't, for reasons of adolescent development and ego, internalize at the time. And only years later did I realize that his words were, were repeating in my head and have formed uh, some mantras for me. And that when I reflected on that time, he had been an incredible mentor. People like in my early career, Kim Westheimer, who is now with an organization called Gender Spectrum, but was my colleague with the Massachusetts Department of Education back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Someone who has incredible wisdom, life experience, thoughtfulness, caring, and who is able to share her counsel in a really light touch, meaningful, interpersonal way in ways that gave me help and support at the time, but have proven to be lifelong lessons of mentorship, even though we don't uh, talk quite as regularly as we once did when we saw each other every day. Eric, could you give us a little more context on that light touch? Kim was able to give me really gentle counsel, but in a way that didn't feel like she was giving me advice. So what I mean by that was she invested heavily in our relationship, in knowing each other and in understanding each other's intent as a way of not just building rapport, but building a shared feeling of positive intent. And she was really, she was really attentive to other people's emotional state. So if we finished doing a big training together, for instance, and she noticed something that I could do differently, she also knew that after a big 
training, I was at my most kind of heightened or sensitive and she would never give me the counsel then. But maybe later on that day, she'd be like, I loved this. I loved this. And what? tell me what you thought about this part or tell me what you thought about that part. And I would always know, all right, here it comes. I was, you know, I, my ego was so fragile that I was waiting for bomb to drop, but she never did it in that way. It was always about like, you know, I love learning X from you and I have an idea for you that you might really enjoy taking forward. And it meant that I felt like she was really invested in me as a person and as a professional and that she recognized, and I think of this as another important characteristic of great mentoring relationships, that there are aspects of the relationships that are bi-directional, that it's not always I'm the mentor and you're the mentee. And as I've moved through my career and become a mentor to people, I often find, and this is true as an executive coach also, I often feel like I learn as much or more from them as they learn from me. I'm always, um, I don't know how you both feel about this, but I'm always a little suspicious of the phrase reverse mentoring because I feel we like- We are totally with you. Good. I'm glad because that, awesome. that's- super sketchy. Like we're, we can be in a shared mentoring relationship where we are mentoring each other, but like, why is it reverse? Why can't we just be each other's mentors or each other's colleagues with a mentoring, a mentoring partnership? You also said about Titus that because of your adolescent development and ego, some of these things weren't able to quite internalize. And then when you just said about him, that it was the importance of understanding her intent. I've never like thought of it that way. And given your vast experience working and like educating children, adolescents, Is it something that as we are developing in our younger age, it's harder for us to really grasp the intent just because we have so much things swirling and we're still exploring and trying to like figure out our own barrier boundaries that like we can't take it in as well because we don't understand why they're telling it to us. I'm going to give you a slightly different angle on that, Jimmy. Please. Yeah. Uh, I, I think young people are not uniquely terrible at that. I think adults are equally terrible at that. <laughs> I think, Good point. I think I, I, think I, I was even extra ter- terrible at it back then back then and because of emotional maturation sometimes young people are experiencing like sensory overload and so the lesson for any of us is think about meeting people where they are how do we understand what their emotional state is what their current context is and share information in a way that feel appropriate to them. Eric, what was Titus's mantra? Do you mind sharing that stuck uh, in your head? Yeah, sure. And I've got a bunch of them throughout the course of my life and career, but this is the one of the first ones that really stuck with me and that I still think about on most days. So by way of context, I had come out as gay earlier that year. I was 16 years old. I was in a summer program with a bunch of peers who I had really connected with, but I hadn't come out to many of them. So here I thought I was struggling quite privately with this core aspect of my identity. Great for teens unks, fantastic, thinking about how I would go home to my family. And Titus had been working quite hard to teach all of us, and it was a multiracial group of young people, about notions of privilege and power, uh, about systemic privilege and systemic power, quite common conversations today, but less so, especially among adolescents in 1992. And he wrote to me, those who feel discomfort easily are charged with the obligation of making others aware. Be more sensitive to the discomfort of others because they are your allies. I was like, who does he think he is? How dare he? I was like super offended, having no clear idea exactly what he was saying. But over the years, of course, I came to understand one, that I wasn't doing a very good job of keeping myself closeted from anyone. And that Titus was attempting to engage me in the notion that with the core aspects of my identities that were marginalized or minoritized, I had an obligation as a member of a community to be really attentive to, thoughtful about, 
and engaged with the identities of other people who are minoritized or marginalized. And it has informed the way that I think about myself as a leader, about my work in the world, about the ways that I engage with communities that are mine and communities that are not mine. And it absolutely has stayed with me for my entire life. I recently uh, saw Titus on video during the first part of the COVID period for the first time since 1992 and felt like I was seeing somebody that I had been in dialogue with regularly for my entire adult life. I He was quite generous in not sharing what was obvious to me, which was that he had no idea who I was. I was one of literally thousands of students that he's worked with over a 25-year period. But I felt that what was so effective about him as a mentor was that he had left me with lessons, and that was the one that was the most salient, but not the only one, that I managed to stay in dialogue with, wrestling with, for decades beyond the actual interaction. And so I felt this almost familiarity with him and I could see he doesn't know who I am. And then I thought, but why would he? I hadn't given him that gift, but he had given me an incredible gift that I held on to for the rest of my life and will continue to hold on to for whatever is ahead. Pretty cool. I have full goosebumps there. Yeah. That was amazing. I think in a way you just described the ideal goal that is almost impossible to reach for any mentoring relationship, which as you said, is the gift that you continue to wrestle with yeah. for decades to come. That's a massive idea that we have not yet discussed in such a way of like a goal for really showing up for somebody else. Wow. And that makes me think too, you know, being mindful, right? You have kids. I have, I have older kids. Jimmy has a very, very young baby who's seven months old, not quite ready for mentoring yet. Although Jimmy, is trying to mentor her and burping, I guess. So that's always, you know, useful. But yeah, imagining you also getting to know kind of younger people in these stages. And like you said, the conversation has evolved. I know my daughters are so attuned and evolved and discuss things that, you know, I feel like it took us years to discuss. Are there certain ways that you approach younger people today? Or do you have any examples of any kind of younger folks that you've been mentoring and how maybe Titus's words has shown up for you? I think with much younger people, with kids, especially when I'm at my best, I'm just super curious about them. I'm not always at my best with kids. I often find myself reverting to aspects of parent-child or adult-child relationships that feel more like what I grew up with, like I'm, I'm grown up. And then I sort of sometimes recognize like I'm at my worst right now. But then, you know, kids kids are super smart. And so you get these moments where like they say something and you go, and, and that's what kind of snaps me back into the like, be curious about them. Hear about the world from their point of view and and I find with my own kids, the number of times, three, three children, a nine-year-old and two five-year-olds, and the number of times I'm like, how was your day? And I think to myself, why am I asking it that way? Like, I know they're not going to, they're going to, I know exactly what they're going to say. Fine. But I am genuinely interested. And so the challenge for me as the parent or with their friends as an adult, or sometimes when the relationships are structured differently as a mentor, is to think back to that same lesson, which is how do I meet them where they are in a way that gets them to think and share and explore, partly because it's more fun and more satisfying for me, and partly because they get way more out of the conversation. And then I'm not just like, oh, there's Ruby's dad or one of Ruby's dads, um, but actually a person to talk to. I do have to say it does get better because my daughters are 20 and 17, and now we can have way more evolved conversations. I felt similar. Uh, we've had actually another guest talking about parenting and his sons are baseball players and said that sons were always like, hey, dad, why don't you coach us? Why don't you tell us like how we should be playing better? And he's like, look, I'm not sports dad. I'm business dad. Like, 
<laughs> he's like, I come to the games, my newspaper, my podcast. And he's like, you know what? Later in life, you're going to really appreciate having business dad. And today I'm not sports dad. So I really related thinking I wasn't quite, you know, crafts mom or whatever the Brooklyn mom with the organic snacks and all that too. But man, when you're ready for like a marketing plan and business idea and funding, I am your gal to talk to. So sending them your way. Sending them your Please. Way. I would yeah. love to. It's my favorite Absolutely. thing to talk about as everybody knows. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I agree. And it does, it does evolve as, as your kids get older. I think you're able to mentor them in a different way and they see you in a different way. I think it reminds me that one of the things, so, uh, so part of my life and work are uh, about being an executive coach, which is, which has some overlap with mentoring, but is distinctively different. And one of the things that is a fundamental of the philosophy of the firm that I've been a part of is leveraging the tools of psychology as a support for business leaders or for leaders in any context. And so one of the psychology, and it's a bit of pop psychology, but there's some, something really valuable about it that we often rely on is the notion of transactional analysis. So Eric Byrne in the 70s writes, games people play, and it lays out the relationship between parents and adults and children, and what is the difference between taking on a parent role, a child role, or an adult role. Great lessons for all kinds of interpersonal relationships. Um, super useful set of tools in thinking about how adults interact with each other. But the thing I have to remind myself is that I spend a lot of time with adults saying, what would it mean to handle this in an adult, adult way? rather than acting out as a parent or acting out as a child. But with kids, you can't say that. I can't say to my kids, like, you need to, you need to engage in an adult way right now. And I'm like, okay, wait, I got to stop and think about this differently. How do I let them just be kids and still support them, guide them, sometimes coach them, sometimes mentor them, sometimes just plain parent them in a way that matches their developmental and emotional needs. So the answer isn't to approach them like you're a kid too. It's not a kid to kid. It's definitely not, but it is also not to approach them like they're mini adults. Like I can respect them and engage with them kindly and thoughtfully. Uh, without trying to treat them as mini adults and definitely not for me as a mini kid. Not Sometimes it happens. Yeah. Eric, do you have like a, a, a kind of intro or like a prompt that sometimes you use when you meet somebody and maybe it's different by age group or situation to get a better feel for where they are, quote unquote, at that time? Because you know, I could walk in, look exactly the same, report myself the same way, and I might be out in left field one day and the next day, you know, I'm like stuck in a calculator or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think that's true of all of us, right? Like we never show up the same in every circumstance, or if we do, we might be pathological, but we tend to match ourselves in some way or adapt ourselves to our context. So I kept a list of these for years and eventually turned them into a deck of cards, which we give to people. And I'll send you both one of them, which are just uh, provocative questions that get people to think about how they know who they are, or why they operate the way that they do. Super useful when uh, we do we do deep dive psychological assessment of executives. So it comes in handy there. But my favorite question, which came from another Another one of my mentors, a guy called Andy Houghton, who was the person who hired me into the firm that, that I now lead, is what do other people get wrong about you? And so I might not lead, I might not lead with that question in the first instance, but it's one of my favorite questions to get to know people really well. What do other people get wrong about you? Because you get two sets of data in their answer. Number one, you get data about a thing that they don't necessarily love, but that actually other people get right about them. And you get data about how do they want to be seen and who do they want to be in the world. And so as a mentor, but also as a coach, also as a sponsor, also as a colleague or a collaborator, lots of different roles, you can then engage them with the person they want to be, with their aspiration for themselves. And um, hey, who among us doesn't want to be treated as the best version? 
version of ourselves as our aspirational selves. And it's a lot easier to rise to the occasion when the people around you are treating you that way. All-time favorite question. Great way uh, and a great gift from Andy to share that with me and with, with all of our colleagues too. Phenomenal. I, I feel like we're going to have to do an augmenter segment where I ask Julie to tell me what she thinks other people get wrong about me and vice versa. No, no, no. You got to start with saying what you think other people get wrong about you. Then you can ask Julie to confirm or deny it, but you got to say your stuff first. Have, well, you're you're mentoring me, me well, but in your seeing my, <laughs> my attempts at avoidance whenever possible to get into anything of reality about myself. Not allowed. Not allowed. That's how you build authentic relationships. You got to show up in the accountability mirror. Yep. We'll, we'll go deep. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We'll go deep. I love it. What a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant question. Thank you so much for that. But I want to talk about your book, as I mentioned. And that was the door into this wonderful Eric window and all the great things that have come so far from this. But I'd love if you don't mind just sharing a little bit about your rubric, uh, which I thought was brilliant, but I'd love to, I could repeat back what I heard, but I'd love to hear straight from you. And then of course, we'd love to hear about how mentoring factors into decision-making. So I'll let you take it from there. Thanks, Julie. So the whole idea behind the book is that the most difficult decisions that leaders have to make, whatever kind of leader you are, anything you lead in any place in your life, the most difficult decisions that leaders have to make are decisions that are human, that are complex, that don't have a clear answer to them, and that whatever choice you make, there are repercussions that affect real people's real lives. And so what I noticed was that the, the leaders that I've worked with across contexts and industries and geographies and ages and identities all over the world were often stuck on how do I make a decision where I'm not sure what's right or wrong. Everybody wants to do the right thing. But who decides what the right thing is? There's no manual. There's no training to tell you what the right thing is. And so I saw leaders grappling with this, but having no context within which to talk about where do you get your ideas about right and wrong from? And so the framework for decision-making that I expound upon in difficult decisions is do you understand your morals, where you got your ideas about right and wrong, what your influences are on your morality? Do you understand your ethical context? What are the guiding forces external to you that indicate what's helpful or harmful in a given context. And by the way, that ethical context can change and does change over time. Things that we think of as helpful at one time or as positive at one time might seem really harmful later on. So you have to constantly be evaluating that. And alongside your morals and your ethical context is your role responsibilities. To whom do you have obligations? Who has expectations of you? Those difficult decisions typically come about when two sides of that triangle come into conflict with one another. And so to help you make the decision, when two sides are in clear conflict, you look to what will create the most help, the least harm, meet the needs of most stakeholders, and align to your own sense of what's right and wrong. That sounds really complicated, and I don't mean it to. It's just about aligning your morality, your ethical context, and your role responsibilities. For me too, running a similar, obviously a different kind of business, but a similar business. And I loved how many examples that you gave, because at first I read that and I was like, morals, ethics, you know, it took me a second to be like, okay, I grew up with sort of conflicting morals. I came, I came from parents who had very opposite views of what morals looked like, and then kind of my ethical background, but then also a very, who are all those stakeholders? Who are all the people that are going to be affected by your decision? And when your ultimate goal 
goal is the continuation of an organization. I loved, I think you were sharing a little bit about one of your clients. I won't mention which one, but how they had to really consider like, we may have to lay people off. We may have to do things now, but this is going to continue the organization for much longer. In the book, I was so enlivened by all of the different examples that you gave. It was really helpful. That example is about... And the chief executive I've had the pleasure of having a partnership with for more than five years now. And Patrice really wrestling at the beginning of the COVID period with, can we protect people's employment for the long run by making really difficult choices in the short term? Or are we better off making an easier choice in the short term, knowing that we may compromise people's livelihoods, the contributions that we make to our community, the value of the, of the company to our shareholders in the long run? And his wrestling with that is really compelling and uh, and the decision that he made proved to save more jobs, more ability to contribute and much greater longevity for the company in the long run than it would have we have the benefit of hindsight had he made what was the easier choice in the short term. Really cool of him to share that. He's a great example of someone who I have the benefit of being his executive coach, but I learn as much or more from him as, uh, as I think he gets from me. I can imagine. So yeah, and then actually, to be honest, I felt like you were mentoring me, even though you didn't know me, by reading this book, because at that time, I didn't really feel like I had other people to talk to because it was quite a confidential kind of decision that, that was being made. What do you do as a leader when you are kind of approaching these decisions? Obviously, you have your own leadership team, but if you are the CEO, you're the one in charge. You're the one ultimately having to make that decision. How do you recommend you go about finding the people who can support you while you're making this decision? I think this is a this is a great spot where it's less about determining for yourself what right and wrong are and instead understanding your influences, the influences of your thinking about right and wrong. Where do you get your ideas about right and wrong from? Actually, even if they don't know it, they may have provided some, some mentoring to you through the lessons of their experience. And so can you seek out those people and ask them, how would you handle this? Or more importantly, how do you think about this? They don't know how they would handle it because they've never been in that chair. Most people have never been in our chairs, whatever. Even if they sat in them, they didn't sit in them at the same time that we did. But to understand how do other people whose thinking you admire, whose feeling you admire, and whose integration of those you admire teach you about what matters to you and how you determine right and wrong. Eric, I'm curious in how you would or how you might have seen this potential exercise change, especially with social media and people presenting themselves in a certain way. And so you might want to aspirationally believe that this person's right and wrong is how I make decisions. But in truth, that person is not that way. And the reason I started thinking about this is because I often think about how my grandfather would do something and then try to interpret that. But my grandfather passed when I was like seven or eight. I can't really ask him. So I'm just kind of almost making it up for myself. Yes. That's the same thing with the facade and social media. How have you helped people think through that? I love that question, Jimmy, because I think this highlights one of the important things about morality, which is that it is externally influenced, but it is internally distilled. So whether your That's grandfather- a hell of a quote right there. Is that an yeah. Eric Kleiner original? It is, and it's, and I expound on it in the book a bit. <laughs> and uh, haven't read it yet. Sorry. That's okay. That's <laughs> you don't have to. Like any great leadership book, read the HBR article and then put the book on your shelf. That's another one. Now, that one you may not want to attribute to me in quite the same way. Um, <laughs> we won't tell your publisher. <laughs> my publisher would not like that quote one day. <laughs> and us being all jumbos, you know, a little too much shine on Cambridge instead of medicine. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so I'll say this: I think that the dilemma that you present is a real one, 
But what matters is more how we make sense of the influence than whether it's entirely authentic to the influencer. And I don't think that's a new question in the context of social media. I share an example in the book that the building that uh, that has been our organization's headquarters for most of its history is a building in London that is renowned because it was a studio that Pablo Picasso created the sets for an opera at the uh, Royal Opera House in about 100 years ago. And so for a long time, we used that as a great entry point to talking about our home, our headquarters being this source of creativity, being this place where like we get to experience brilliance on a daily basis. We had these great postcards that showed Picasso working in a space that looks virtually identical that is our offices today. And then a bunch of us saw Hannah Gadsby perform Nanette, in which she talks about the context for Picasso being a violent sexual assaulter of young women with a known reputation that is often glossed over about the relationship between Picasso and many of his so-called muses. And we had this moment of going, whoa, we have been thinking about this all wrong. Can you separate the artist from the art? I don't know. I don't know. But the question that it often raises, similar to your framing about social media, is can I still learn something from what a person says or does and internalize that learning, even if I don't agree with the totality of what they say or do? So I don't have to love what you've put on social media to still feel that you can be a mentor to me in some other context. Ditto. I love that so much because we have actually had guests talk about an anti-mentor, <laughs> which uh-huh. is how do I learn what not to do? But what I appreciate you're saying, Eric, is it is subtle, right? There are pieces, it is complicated. And that's also, I think, what I really got from your book. It's not black or white, right? right? We were talking about uh, the Beyond Meat COO who bit somebody's face and, you know, like, okay, probably time for him to go. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure there was subtleness to that situation too. We don't know why, but you think about all these really, really subtle situations and <laughs> um, that's a topic for another day. But I, I agree, right? It is like, it's not always just an anti-mentor. It's like, there are the elements that you can take with you that has worked and what hasn't worked and also how they approach these kind of things. That, that notion of an anti-mentor is interesting to me. I've thought about this a lot because of, of people who I think have maybe thought of themselves as mentors or, or people who were certainly leaders that I was expected to follow. And I thought, if I'm ever a leader, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what this person does. I had a few of those in government. But now, with the benefit of some distance, not having to go to work for them every day, I can't believe I'm saying this when I think about how much pain they caused. But they were still mentors because they showed me what not to do, but they taught me what to do. And I gleaned a lot from that. And there's something, something to that. They gave you things that, that you're continuing to wrestle with decades later. Exactly. Hence, they meet the goal. Exactly. Eric, I'm not going to be able to resist. I have to ask a marketing question because now that you've done your Pablo Picasso story and the, the wonderful art in, in that narrative, did YSC then find an artist to come in and recreate some of like the beautiful scenes that were verbalized in your sales pitches to kind of like, you know, say this house is now clear? Nope. That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> but what we did do instead was talk about how our relationship to Picasso had shifted and what that said about our organization and that our embrace of identity and of course, social identities as an important part 
of what makes people uniquely human, what makes people great leaders, informs our ethos of equity, diversity, and inclusion, was one that led us to let go of something that we had held tightly to for a long time and embrace a different way of engaging with it. It's we the can, willingness to evolve, which is actually what all of these giant companies and organizations, that's a big piece of where they need to go, is that willingness to evolve. That's where the, the lifelong wrestling comes in. That's where being a mentor, but looking for mentors throughout your entire life, not just your career, not just your early career, accepting the notion that we all have stuff to learn and people to learn from over the course of our entire lives just makes us better. It doesn't mean we were wrong. I don't know, were we wrong before? I don't know, the ethical context shifted. We learned something new that shifted our understanding. So, uh, you know, that's the idea, I think. So uh, shout out to any listeners who are artists in London, please reach out to YSCC <laughs> department and uh, begin your proposals. And if artists are reaching out constantly and you need to stay organized, watch out because HubSpot is a fantastic tool, a SaaS platform and customer relationship manager that can help you understand your sales process, your funnel, what's successful and what's not successful. Learn how HubSpot can help your business grow better at HubSpot.com. Thank you, business godmother HubSpot for helping us be part of the HubSpot podcast network. Eric, that was my second live read yet. So bear with me. I that, that was pretty that was pretty good, Jimmy. I'm gonna tell you why. Because you made me think of something that directly ties to the ways that one of our colleagues in YSC has actually used HubSpot to mentor me at something. This is real. Oh you God. did not, you did not ask me to say this, but this is real. So we have a team member who for years, like literally, her name is Zilla Dora, shout out to Zilla, uh, based in London. Zilla used Excel spreadsheets to track every bit of data about our business development. And when we finally moved on to HubSpot as our CRM system, she was like, it was so much easier when I could manage it myself at first. And then she learned how to use all of it. And she became absolutely masterful at deriving data from HubSpot that she could use to develop insights. It wasn't just the data management. It was the ability to derive insights and then come back to me. And, and like she's earlier in her career, she's utterly brilliant. I think I make her a little nervous. Zilla, if you're listening, I don't mean to make you nervous, but I know I make you a little nervous. And, and Zilla, if you're listening, I share being a little nervous around Eric. So <laughs> I'm not. I know. Uh, thank you. <laughs> she comes back with these brilliant insights and shows me how to look at things differently and think about things differently and ask me questions differently because she's figured out a way to use the suite of tools from HubSpot to make sense of the world differently. It's such a lesson that somebody who has a set of skills that I do not have, who's at a very different stage of her career, has become a mentor to me in how I think about things and ask questions. It is super cool. And like twice a year, I know she's going to come put this like 80 page deck on my desktop <laughs> and go read this and then let's talk about it. We and cannot wait to have Zilla on the pod, Jimmy. She will kill me. She will absolutely <laughs> We'll go very easy on her, but yeah. I cannot wait. I want to ask a couple really quick kind of word association questions to you. All right, uh, we all right. do this as one of our segments at the end. One word, quick phrase, whatever it is. But as you said, we, we're looking to kind of redefine mentoring. We hope to be able to do that through some of this rapid fire word association. So okay. when I say mentor, what would you say back? Insight. When I say mentee, what would you say back? Mutual. Mm. How about the word sponsor? Advocate. And coach? Mirror. Mirror. I love it. 
that is a fantastic group of words. We got nouns and adjectives. That wonderful. Uh, if you could put on your wizard hat and sparkly red shoes and make one change, you have magic. You know, you can make one change right now. You snap your fingers. There's a change in mentoring. What would you do that could have like a lasting change uh, or the, the most dramatic change possible? Yeah, in a positive way. I would um, I would make the shoes purple. <laughs> We love purple as Augmenter's but, colors. Did you yeah, know that? So, that's our color. Yeah, you're just staying on brand so well with the HubSpot shout out, keeping our uh, primary colors together. I love uh, yeah. I do what I can. I do what I can. I would make the expectation that people learn how to be intentional mentors and mentees a part of all education. That it's it's something that we do from childhood that we do throughout all formal education, that every year you spend time thinking, how am I a mentor and how am I a mentee? And how do I want to be different as a mentor? How do I want to be different as a mentee? Approaching it with intent, regularity, and some uh, intentional space for building your self-image and your relationship image in that context. Phenomenal. Love it. Love it. And because you clearly have the gift to gab and you know, elocution is great uh, compared to mine and, met and everybody else, uh, as I stumble over myself here trying to ask this question, is there one more quote or mantra that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I'm going to give you yeah. another one from one of my mentors. So I talked a little bit about Kim Westheimer earlier on. Kim, Kim and I did a lot of live professional training together. And she used to say to me at the end, we can get back 100 feedback sheets and 99 of them will give you perfect scores. And one of them will give you average scores. And you will spend disproportionate time focusing on the one. Don't forget to focus on the 99. So true. It's so easy, especially when you get that positive feedback. It's like, okay, what's the negative? What's not working? And yeah. stick with that. That's awesome. Eric, I'm so grateful that you wrote that book. Thank you for taking the time to do that. It was really meaningful to me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, Julie, it's always great to end an interview with somebody setting you up for your next discussion. Yes, that was a win-win. That was my hope. You know how you meet people in various times in your life and you just have a sense. I have a sense, as you know, Jimmy, I'm quite, I'm one of those feel people versus like the think people, but I have a feeling that Eric and I are going to get to chance to hang out and spend some time together. I'm excited about it. I think maybe I could ask him to be my mentor, but not in a creepy way. No, you're going to have to reword it, but it's a good initiative. <laughs> but the sentiment is there. Yes, sentiment is there. And some wonderful names from Eric. You know, I'm always into the names and the phrases. Titus Higgins leaving behind the takeaway for Eric with a great mentor leaves you with lessons that stay present and continue a dialogue in your own head for years and decades to come. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps again, just saying it, just thinking about having that impact on somebody where they are still tossing and turning around your words. And that internal conversation is affecting their actions and goals and outlook on a daily or annual basis. It's just a big deal. I mean, that's like really affecting people positively. And it's like the mantra, right? You can always go back to. I know that one of our very first episodes with guests was both of our Pete's, our mentors. Mm -hmm. And there's not very often that a day goes by that I don't think of my Pete Brace's mantra, which I don't always adhere to. Be brief, be bright, be gone. <laughs> I might be bright and be gone, but I'm not always brief. But uh, yeah, I do always think of that. I think these mantras are so, so helpful and have something that you can always relate back to. Um, so that people, and I feel really grateful. I hear people, or I have people that I haven't talked to for a while and they come back to me and they'll repeat back to me something that I said to them, which sometimes I remember and sometimes I don't, and that it really stuck with them as well. 
I have a good one. Can I share it? You can. I think it's going to sound familiar to you, but I often get a lot of either entrepreneurs or mostly people who want to start consulting firms or want to be consultants as they come to me just asking for advice or help. And I always, as you know, have heard probably me say, remember... What do you like to do? What are you good at? What are you getting paid for? Just have to like think of those three things. And that's how you are able, if you can at least get two of the three, if you could, can get three of the three even better. But I think that's kind of a key to a successful entrepreneurship or, you know, sort of consulting experience. So I feel like I say that the most often of all the things I share with other people. It's not brilliant, but it does seem to resonate. What also resonated with me was when we did our rapid fire word associations and we got to the last word, coach and error replied with mirror. And I found that noun to be a very interesting choice. And I didn't totally understand what he meant. What do you think he meant? I think it means that when you are, I'm taking this from my example, being on the basketball court, you're on the court and the coach is saying, it's time to run. Something went wrong. It's literally you looking back at yourself. It's just, yes, you already knew this. And this is then your own, you're creating effects for yourself. This is accountability coming back to you. And the coach can't make you do anything. The coach can only meet you where you are. So the more you put in, the better you get. If you show up and you're lazy and you're not interested and you don't care, I can get anything out of it, period. Whereas a sponsor can grab your hand and pull you through, which is very different. Yeah, but then how does a mentor fit? I think it's just a a totally different relationship. The mentoring relationship is separate. And that's part of the why we ask those questions between sponsor and coach. They're not in a mentoring relationship and it's never called a coaching relationship. So that's why I like that thing about the mirror. It's not a relationship. It just bounces off and you can see yourself Mm -hmm. in that coach. And if you don't, see yourself, you probably need to find a different coach or it's going to be a very difficult year or team for that period. Wow. I love that. That's so helpful. I was a little confused to so thank you for explaining that to me. Shout out Coach so, Killett, Newton <laughs> South Basketball. I cannot wait to have him on the podcast. I have a lot of questions for him. So don't forget, Difficult Decisions, Eric Pliner, awesome book by where all business books are sold, probably in airports, online, ebooks. And this was a great time. It was Thanks, fantastic. Jenny. And Eric gave us content for what we're going to have to ask each other in the future. I can't wait. I have teed up many thoughts in my head. His big question, what do others get wrong about you? As a casual. I also wonder what we got wrong about each other. Oh. Teeing it up. I know you're going to say about me. I thought Jimmy had great hair and it's just not true. (laughs) It's a farce. Your hair was not part of the. If I I had the right stylist coach, I would have looked right in the mirror and realized, nope, don't got it. That's an awesome connection. Yes. I'm very excited for that conversation. So stay tuned. We hope this episode was brief yet bright, and now it's time to read us out. And remember, we are here because real relationships have the power to transform organizations and build dynamic communities. Go ahead, Jimmy. Absolutely. Augmenters supports mentoring that matters. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmenters.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about someone who needs a new mentoring relationship in their life pronto. We welcome questions and suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us, or via social media with our handle at augmentershq. Shout out to our producers, Erlen Cato. Thank you. Augmenters out. See ya.